Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Gonzalo Lamana, author of the book, How Indians Think, Colonial Indigenous Intellectuals and the Question of Critical Race Theory. Dr. Lamana, thank you for joining me today. Oh, no. Thank you, Colin, for your interest in my book and for this opportunity to have an interview. Gonzalo Lamana is Associate Professor in the Department of Hispanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pittsburgh. His teaching and research explores themes of subalternity and indigeneity, race and theology, and meaning-making in the colonial period through a comparative cross-area and time study of colonial and post-colonial dynamics. Some of his previous publications include Domination Without Dominance, Inca-Spanish Encounters in Early Colonial Peru, and Pensamiento Colonial Critico. Dr. Lamana, I'd like to begin with you. Could you tell uh, listeners a little bit about your background and how you became so interested in the, in the study of race theory during the colonial period? Sure. Um, I was born in Argentina, um, South America, and um, of a family of European descent. My father was Spanish. My mother is Argentine, but she's a descendant of Italians, Italian immigrants. And grew up there, basically did my studies there. Um, something that is kind of equivalent to a BA, but it doesn't really fit the, to your system, but, but it's about that. And... Um, I traveled a lot in my late 20s to Europe, where my siblings were in exile because of the military dictatorship in Argentina, which was kind of a ironic reversal of my father having gone in exile um, to Argentina, fleeing the fascist dictatorship in Spain. And... um, then eventually came to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. And um, as to how exactly I became interested in colonial, in, in race theory uh, applied to colonial times, to Latin American colonial times, um, I think it has to do with the way I do research, and is that I don't go from big frames to then fill out all the boxes, I work the other way around. I look at details that get my attention, details that usually don't fit the most common frames, uh, used to analyze them. And then I work my way out and I say, okay, how how exactly do I make sense of it? Um, Where does it come from? Um, what is the language that can be used to address this element? And that was exactly the case of this book, where I I was working on um, the writings of indigenous intellectuals in the Latin American colonial period, specifically in the Andes, in the Andean region of South America. And there were a lot of things in them that really struck me. And it's not that they contradicted what other scholars have said about these thinkers. It's that they simply didn't make sense. They didn't fit anywhere. 
So I started reading different things, um, hoping to find some kind of echo, some kind of connection there. And uh, I was familiar with the writings of Du Bois. Slowly, I came across first Baldwin and then Gerald Bisonor. And then I started to realize that the language these 20th century thinkers used was the most helpful to make sense of those elements that had caught my attention earlier on. And that to me was a revelation and kind of a, a trip backwards, if you want, because I got there and I said, hold on. Um, if such is the case, that means that there was something called race thinking, even when the language of race didn't exist or was not formalized in the way that it would be at the end of the 1700s, 1800s. So I thought, okay, these people are thinking about the same problems, even if they are 400 years apart. And that's how I ended up saying, okay, so I'm going to write about the relations, the connections, the commonalities of intellectual activists 400 years apart and dealing with, if you wish, different imperial projects, because one thing is the U.S. in the 20th century, which is the legacy of English colonialism, and another one is Poma de Ayala or Garcilaso de la Vega, El Inca, writing at the very beginning of the Western expansion under Spanish colonialism. So that kind of sums up um, how this, what I would like to call organic connection, uh, came into being, really. Well, I think that's well said, and, and I can see it in your book, the way you reinterpret um, pieces of literature that have been interpreted before, but now you put a new um, perspective on it, and I, and I can appreciate that. And I'd like to talk about that more a little bit later. Um, but first, I'd like to go into the term Indian, which is on the title, and you have it in quotes, and uh, you talk about why you determined to use the word Indian. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that now? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is, again, one of those things that are organic to the process of writing the book. It's not that I had a title. It's not that I have an intention of talking about it. It's just that once I realized that these people were talking about race thinking, then I thought, okay, so what are the elements here that are being used? And I went back to the Spanish text, the colonial text, to provide context and actually to, to understand the context and to understand why um, there were such commonalities. And then I realized that there was, in fact, um, a pretty um, rather implicit way of thinking about indigenous peoples and that 
Spaniards refer to indigenous peoples, this is something uh, that is important to highlight, as Indians. We all know the problems with the word Indians. We all know how it came into being. Perhaps what is so much is not so much known is that within the Spanish legal system, they talked about the Republic of the Spaniards and the Republic of the Indians, which implicitly meant that everybody uh, that had been born in the Americas was an Indian, whatever that meant. And um, so I was hesitant. And I think all scholars of Latin America, of colonial Latin America, have been hesitant for a long time. And I haven't really taken a position on which term to use. So if you if you browse through browse through the, the literature, you will find that some people use the word Indian every now and then. Sometimes they say naturales, which mean natural from um, natives, and nobody really feels comfortable with any of those terms. You can use, of course, the ethnic group of the indigenous actor, how they self-identify. And then while I was kind of trying to find a solution or a position that I found agreeable, I realized that, well, Guaman Poma de Ayala and Garcilaso de la Vega used the word Indian to refer to themselves and to refer to other indigenous actors. And I thought, these guys are not naive. They're very smart, very precise, and very intelligent. So why is it that they're using that term? And that's when I set off to uh, understand what they meant by Indian and why they chose the term Indian to convey what they wanted to convey to the readers. And it was clear to me that there was, I had to be able to put together what Indian meant to Spaniards. And that's the, the first chapter of my book in which I say, well, there are images or imaginings, as I rather call them, um, that are pervasive among Spanish texts about what characterizes an Indian. So that's one part of the, of the exercise of understanding why the word Indian is so important. And the other half was, okay, so why about, what about uh, Garcilaso? What about Guamampoma? Why do they chose the word Indian? And my answer was, all right, they knew that Indians didn't exist unless it was uh, part of the Spanish colonial system or the Spaniards' imagination. So what was in it? What did they get out of it? And on the one hand, I think that they wanted to reach readers indigenous readers, and the only vehicular language was Spanish. We are talking about hundreds of different ethnic groups with hundreds of different languages 
that were not mutually intelligible. So that was one part of the question. The other is, and this goes back to your previous question about race theory, um, I think their position was, okay, we do know there are no Indians except in the Spaniards' imagination, but the Spaniards are the one the ones who are in the power position. So it's important for us to understand how they think. And they think about Indians. So one part of our strategy of survivance has to be to know how they see us. And that's why uh, Du Bois is clearly so um, relevant to my own argument. And the other half of that is, now that we know how they think of us, let's decide how we want to think of us. And the us is Indians, because the key element that is organizing this text is the colonial power structure. So they say, well, they have their own ways of defining what it is to be an Indian. And, and I'm, um, I think it's important to, to point out also that they are thinking about the future. That's why I call them activists, intellectual activists. They are saying nothing is going to change in the colonial world until people who think of Indians in the way Spaniards think of them change the way they see the world. And so they say, what can we do on our part? Well, each took a different strategy, each offered a different future, but it's clear to me that they decided to get into the fight. And I think that a, a parallel that made, made this intelligible to um, US, scholars, intellectuals, or anybody in the U.S. is what happened during the um, civil rights movement with the idea of black. That some people said, no, let's just, that's a negative term, that's a loaded term, let's put it aside. And some people say, no, let's reclaim this term. And then you have the, the, the black is beautiful movement. So it's not that they say Indian is beautiful, but they decided to get into the fight and resignify what Indian meant. Well, that's really very interesting. Um, I, I wonder if you could look at the other side now and talk about whiteness, which which you call as a state of delusion. Um, how did whiteness come as a, a, a term, a, a way of thinking? Well, um, you're making very good questions. <laughs> Difficult to answer questions. Yes, it's absolutely the other side of the coin. Once I found a solution to, or, or a possible solution to the question of the term Indian, um, then I immediately said or thought, so what am I going to call those that are not Indian? And in that case, 
scholarship on colonial Latin America has less of a problem. Usually people just simply say Spaniards. And in, in a certain way, that would be a fine choice because it distinguishes indigenous actors from European ones. Except that um, in both texts, but mainly in Juan Poma de Ayala's uh, book, that's not the operative divide in the sense that you have native actors who are good and who are bad, and you have Western actors who are good and who are bad. So it's not a matter of origins. It's not a matter of nationalities. It's something else that can affect somebody regardless of where that person came from. And as I was reading, that's I came across Baldwin's ideas on whiteness, and he himself struggled a lot with the language. He, I remember him uh, saying that the language we use is being created by the legacy of the Western imperial expansion. So it allows us to think certain things very well, and I'll, and for other things, we don't have the terms. So he himself was thinking, okay, this is not a matter of race, because if I go down to race and the color of the skin, I go down to where I don't want to be, because that's the system they put together, and I don't believe in that system. And you can see the same thing in Garcilaso de la Vega and Juan Poma de Ayala. So I thought, okay, white, to call Europeans white, white people, really, it seemed like I'm forcing a concept onto a text because the term white was not being used. Nobody self-identified as white. And the idea of white as meaning what it would mean at the end of the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, was not there. I'm not saying that the West didn't have an idea of white as being a good thing, as black as being a bad thing. That is an Old Testament element, it's a New Testament element. Of course, it was up in the air, but it wasn't a word that people used. So I thought, what about whiteness? in the way Baldwin refer, uh, defines it. And as you, you quoted, is as a state of mind. He says, white people are imagined. They imagine themselves to be white and they need the opposite that is black to organize what mean, being white means. And what I like about that is that anybody can imagine it himself or herself as white. You don't need to attach that to the color of the skin. And that's another distinction that Baldwin makes very sternly. He says, you can be as white as you want, and that doesn't have anything to do with your skin color. And the same goes to a certain extent 
for blackness. Blackness for Baldwin is a condition, is the result of having to face constantly whiteness. So that was my choice. And I hope it opens up the possibility of thinking colonial relations in a more layered and um, nuanced way than simply going with Indian versus Spaniard. Well, going back to do, um, the term Indian then, um, I, <clears throat> I found it very interesting that um, there's this upside-down world that you talk about in which Indians know the truth, but they, the Spaniards don't know that they know the truth kind of a thing. So talk about that that struggle with with the fight against this colonial culture that the native indigenous peoples were up against. Yeah, um, I think it springs out of particular historical conditions, um, or maybe not. Um, that's up to other people who have mastered other fields, and they can say, "Hey, no, it's the same thing." And what really uh, struck me. Okay, the Spaniards were convinced that they were superior, and they were convinced that uh, not only indigenous peoples were inferior, but they didn't really know it. It had to be explained to them that their idea of the world was faulty, was essentially a misconception. So the question for an indigenous actor is, okay, so what do I do vis-a-vis -vis that reality, that social reality? And it's a very difficult kind of a catch-22 position to be in because what options does it give you? You can say, you know what, thank you so much for all those great ideas, but I have mine and uh, they're as good as yours. Well, that's going to take you nowhere because it's only going to be further proof that you still haven't really made it to that point where you recognize your limitations. The other option was to say, hey, yeah, I am inferior somehow uh, and I'm working hard to catch up. So both positions would set your world upside down. You would have to play by rules in which you really don't believe, and you would have to accept being looked at, being addressed at, uh, being, mm, being what Wiesner defines as an absent presence, right? You would be there, but you wouldn't really be there in any meaningful way. And from that point of view, you start thinking, all right, so these people had to face a world that was upside down in the sense that they were being told that they were inferior and that that inferiority was directly connected with the fact that they couldn't see reality for what it really was. This has a lot of... Um, implications or ramifications in terms of really a theory of uh, knowledge and a theory of how people operate on the world in which Spaniards thought there is the real real, there is the, the actual order, the truth 
about the order of things. And uh, that we kind of can access, while indigenous peoples, obviously, not only they cannot access it, but they have no idea that there is a difference between the true order of things and what it appears to our senses. And what I found out is that that was really the key issue that both Garcilaso de la Vega and Juan Boma de Ayala were trying to address in their own work. And they were trying to say, all right, how do I talk to people who are convinced that whatever I'm going to say is nonsense? First, they are not even going to hear me. And if they hear, they're going to decide that this is just an absurd thought that little brown people have. So what I'm trying to argue here is that their texts are, to a large extent, pedagogical texts. Um, What I mean by that is they're trying to teach, and they are trying to teach people who cannot see to see reality anew. And that's why I opened the book with what for me is that fabulous quote from Baldwin that I'm going to read to you and says, you write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter, even by a millimeter, the way a person looks or people look at reality, then you can change it. And when I read that sentence, I said, that's exactly what they want to do. They want to alter the way white people, which means people who see reality through whiteness, saw the world and gave it meaning. Well, that's um, an excellent quote, and and I'd like to ask if they accomplished that, but um, let's talk a little bit more about who these guys are uh, before we get to that. So uh, obviously you focus almost uh, solely on Yeoman Poma and Garcia Lasso. Um, what was the context in which they existed and were able to come up with uh, these great intellectual ideas 400 years before uh, it became something that's been debated? Right. What is the context? So we're talking about the beginnings of the Western expansion. We're talking about a period when the um, Spaniards and Portuguese conquerors, merchants, adventurers, clergymen, royal officers, are the ones encountering something that kind of blew up their minds. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea how to put the world together again. And they really, really struggled. You can see that in uh, late 15th century, early 16th century texts, where they're just guessing and they are confronting the existence of a whole section of humanity that wasn't in the book, because at that time... Any um, educated person in Europe thought that the Bible gave the answers to everything. Well, some people still think about it that way today, but this was a widespread um, take on reality in Europe at that time. 
So in a way, um, I think that also speaks to the specificity of this time period in the sense that um, indigenous peoples in the American had a burden on their shoulder that I think they became slowly painfully aware of it is that they have to be the living proof of their Europeans' idea of the world. So that on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have a colonial project that unlike the US situation, was really based on exploiting indigenous politics. There was no um, policy of extermination. There was no policy of taking land. There was a policy of exploiting highly developed societies with state apparatuses that were way more advanced than those in Europe at the same time, with a lot of technical knowledge and an enormous amount of workforce available. So essentially Spaniards initially decided to um, use those resources, those knowledges uh, to uh, obtain value, which was mainly in the shape of gold and silver that was sent back to Europe. There was not a demographic collapse at least not in the core highland region. And very much to the Spaniards' surprise, what happened at least during the uh, 1500s, up to the period when um, Garcilaso and Guamampoma are writing, is that Spaniards had to compete with indigenous initiatives. And what I mean by that is, well, the Spaniards said, let's put here a textile factory. Next day, you will have next door an indigenous textile factory. And they would say, hey, um, there is a very strong market for wine in the mining centers. Next day, you would have an indigenous winemaker and an indigenous network of distribution of wine. And the same happens, you can just keep on unfolding this in all directions. Uh, so it was very much a competition, which made, uh, to go back to your previous point, the situation very much, you can call it paradoxical or ironic, in the sense that there really wasn't any Indians, as Spaniards envisioned them, as inferior, incapable of doing, like an initiative, um, um, incapable of facing the modern project that allegedly Spaniards embodied. So in that context, there was a sea of Spanish texts. And I always tell my students, look at this room, it has four walls. Think that all three walls and I would say four-fifths of the last wall, remaining wall covered by Spanish text. That very small piece that is one-fifth of the fourth wall is what we have about uh, indigenous writers. And in the Andean context, 
the two most important authors were Garcilaso and Juan Poma. And they are very, really um, different in many of the circumstances of the writing. Juan Poma de Ayala, we know relatively little about him. We only know what he tells us in his text and a few small traces in colonial archives. And what we really have is his manuscript. He never published his book. We don't know if there was only one manuscript, if there were many, if this is the final version. There are different opinions. Specialists have different opinions about it. And suddenly, at the beginning of the 1900s, his manuscript was found, if you want to call it so, in the Royal Library in Copenhagen, where it's been neglected for centuries. Nobody knows how it got there. And as I said, it's only a manuscript. It's about 1,400 pages. And on the other hand, we have uh, Garcilaso de la Vega, who is of mixed descent, Spanish and Inca, who could benefit from having a Spanish father with a well-to-do position and an uncle uh, in Europe who had an even better position and who uh, left him a very good inheritance. And he grew up in Peru until his 20s. Then he moved to Spain. He tried um, being in the king's service, uh, military service, nothing worked. So he just decided to become an intellectual. And he wrote a number of books in Spanish. And the most famous one is the Comentarios Reales de los Incas. And I won't translate the title into English because, as you know, um, it can be very misleading. I wonder if you could talk about your reading of those texts uh, what was it like to to delve through, for instance, that fourteen hundred page manuscript, and and then going back to your reinterpretation, you know, you, you're not the first uh, to have gone through and studied these texts, but it, it does seem you were able to gain a new perspective. Can you talk about that that new perspective that you you earned? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so Garcia Lesson has always been well known. If you can, if you want to put it in those terms, he's like the perfect native. He, he speaks uh, impeccable Spanish. And um, on the other hand, Guaman Poma, since his uh, manuscript was first published, facsimile edition, I think, is 1938. And then his writing became more widely available in the 70s at the same time of all the anti-colonial movements, uh, civil rights movements. Um, so they're both at the core of the Latin American, the colonial Latin American canon. Nobody can touch them. And there's been an enormous amount of writing about them and all those uh, studies have fleshed out the way in which culture is 
cultural difference between Western societies and indigenous societies uh, provide the right frame for understanding their texts. This is, is not by any means a univocus, or it, this doesn't imply a univocus position. There are those who criticize the two cultures frame, and there are those, there are those who support it. But regardless of whether you say it works or it doesn't work, everybody uses it. And everybody says in a last instance, one way or another, we can see in their texts the tensions of people who, in, in a certain way, are uh, mediators between uh, native indigenous peoples of the Andes and Western readers. Why that mediation? What's the purpose? How they did it? Uh, were they effective? Were not effective? Who are the readers? Different scholars have different takes. But the organizing principle is that. And to me, simply, I could see that work. I could see that working. I'm sorry. I could see, uh, um, how would you put it? Let's say you're looking at the landscape and um, a miniature landscape, and you have a flashlight. And when you throw light on that little landscape that you have in front of you, it illuminates a lot of things, but it also leaves a lot of other things in shadows. And always my attention had been driven to those shadows because there was a lot in those texts that you couldn't simply explain through a two cultures frame. It's like, well, if such is the case, what about this, what about this, and what about this? And that's how I ended up proposing a different reading of those texts. And I said, yes, culture is there. Cultural differences are there. But there are also a lot of differences that set Europeans and indigenous actors apart. They had nothing to do with their pre-colonial roots. They had to do they are the result of colonial interactions in colonial times, regardless of your, if you want to call it culture or epistemology or ontology or any of those words that, in the last instance, they all refer to the same thing. The idea that what people do has to be explained through the reference to their ways of understanding the world before contact. And I was saying, yeah, there's a lot of things there that can be explained in those terms, but there's also a lot of things that cannot. And that's how I slowly began building and finding in their text a coherence. Those discrepant elements came very clear to me. And uh, just to give one example, um, is I was reading Garcilaso and I was saying, okay, so this book, Everybody says that it's about Incas and in Inca times. But I can see that there's tons of examples that have to do with colonial times, and there are no Incas, uh, meaning the Incas was one ethnic group uh, in the Andean region. These are not about the Incas. These are about Indians 
and Spaniards. So why? What do those stories tell us? And they are uh, interspersed throughout the text. And then you realize that he's not really talking about Incas, or for that matter, about any particular object. He's really going after how people think about those objects. And that's what made both of Guamampoma de Ayala and Garcilaso de la Vega post-Indians using Vizanor's terminology. And I thought that was that kind of illuminated their intervention in colonial affairs. They're not disputing the images about Indians. What they want to do is to change the way people think about the object, being Indians or being Spaniards or being anything. And in that sense, they are post-Indians. And in that sense, they're not in the past, as most Spanish thinkers one way or another, but they are in the future in the sense that they have an awareness of the true conditions of um, colonial society. And in a way that it was, I would think, unthinkable for Spaniards at that moment and in that uh, period of time. Well, there, there's definitely a lot to unpack uh, throughout the book and, and <clears throat> excuse me, and what you were able to illuminate. But I'd like to leave that for readers to, to discover for themselves. Uh, but I, I would like to know how effective do you think these two intellectuals were at accomplishing their goal of building awareness? And, and how, how effective were they at the time? And how effective were they over time uh, leading until now? Again, you're asking very good questions and difficult to answer once. Um, how effective they were. Sadly, I think they were not effective when it comes to people who thought of themselves as white. Um, if there's something in the colonial record is a certain um, regularly absent presence of anything of this kind of critical thinking when it comes to Spaniards. At the same time, and, and that's part of my current project, I do find traces on um, indigenous actors, not necessarily that they have read any of these books or they have um, changed the way they thought, they saw the world thanks to them, but they are expressing exactly the same kind of ideas. It's a very difficult task because most often colonial records just talk about what needs to be done. And if you're gonna uh, present a claim before a judge, you're not going to tell the judge, you know, I know that you are very limited and um, you cannot imagine what I really mean to say, and I understand it, and nevertheless, I'm going to present You're rather going to go and say, this is what I need to get out of this, and I'm going to play the game. So uh, that's as to the reception. And uh, then um, I'm currently working on precisely trying to find traces in the colonial record of these kinds of thinking. 
not necessarily reception, but just to say these were not two extraordinary guys that nobody ever thought what they were thinking. No, they were just collecting something that was kind of common sense, at least for certain indigenous actors at that time. So uh, what about then uh, the timing of your book? Do you think it, it fits into today's social context? I hope so. That's why I chose to publish with Arizona. And that's why, um, in a way, the the title, as you remark, um, doesn't refer in any way particularly to Spanish colonialism or the Andes. I'm speaking from there and from that experience. I'm just hoping that this will be an invitation for an open dialogue. Well, definitely. Um, like, like I said, there is so much in this that uh, we can't really get to all of it. Um, but I definitely enjoyed reading it and learned quite a lot. And, and I admire how much uh, work you must have put into uh, to doing this. Yes, work is what we do. And I very much want to thank you. And I find very important that you have this space where people can talk and hopefully uh, open up new ways of thinking about problems that are still present today. Well, for listeners that would like to get a hold of your book, uh, where can they find it? It's widely available in Amazon and all the main bookstores. And of course, if you go to the webpage of the University of Arizona Press, it's also available there. Well, I've been talking with Dr. Gonzalo Lamana, author of the book, How Indians Think, Colonial Indigenous Intellectuals and the Question of Critical Race Theory. Dr. Lamana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Colin, for this opportunity to speak about the book.